Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue our preaching through the book of Philippians today. We'll be in verses 12 and 13. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sends the reading of his word. May he bless it to us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that in this time that you would bless us, your people, with your grace. That you would work in us through this preaching of your word what is pleasing in your sight. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wondrous things out of your law. Clear away, Lord, the distractions in our hearts, the things that we would meditate on beside you, that we may focus now upon your word, upon the good news that will be proclaimed to us from your word. Work this in us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. What is going to keep you on track in your Christian life? Maybe you've asked this question of yourself. How am I going to stay on track? How am I going to continue in the Christian life to live as I ought to live? Maybe you have disciplines that you use in your life to help maintain your spiritual life, to keep your mind focused on God. Maybe you have people in your life that you turn to, that you talk to about your Christian life. Maybe it's a friend, a pastor, an elder, or somebody at a different church. Somebody you can confide in about yourself as a Christian. What are the things in your life that you think of to help keep you on track? Well, this is a very real question that the Philippian church was asking themselves. How are we going to stay on track as Christians? Paul, who had been a missionary come to them and had preached the gospel, helped found this church and build them up, had left. And they heard that this man who helped build them up in the faith was now imprisoned, as we have heard through this book time and time again. And they're concerned for him. What does that mean for us? If somebody who was so foundational and instrumental in our growth as Christians, what does that mean for us? If the very man that led us, is now in prison. Are we going to be adrift in this life? Maybe you felt this way when Pastor Mark said that he was going to take a different call. Are we going to be rudderless in this Christian life? Well, today, this passage speaks to all of us, all of us in our lives, no matter where we are, that God is the one who will keep us on track. He will keep us in obedience to himself. And the reason he will keep us in obedience to himself is because we are saved. And I would like to unpack what that means for us today in this passage. But today I want you to remember that because we are saved, we obey. And because we are being saved, we obey. Now, the first point I would like us to see this morning 
is that we are to obey even when we are on our own. How will we live when we are on our own? Paul begins, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, I'm absent from you, and I'm going to continue to be absent from you. You're going to have a season in your life where a great Christian leader is not going to be present with you in this time. We look for others to help us on our journeys. We think we don't have the resources, the knowledge, the wisdom, the strength, the power to live our lives as we ought. This is a world that seems set against us at times, maybe often. And we think we need people to help us figure out how to navigate through these things. I'm reminded of one of my favorite scenes in a movie. During Christmas season, my family, we love to watch some of the classic movies. Mine is The Lord of the Rings, but my family doesn't quite share the same affection that I have for it. But one movie that we can all agree on is Star Wars. Now, I grew up watching The Return of the Jedi. I've probably seen that movie ten times more than I've seen any other of the Star Wars movie. But there is a scene in this movie when Luke, this young Jedi, is being trained by Yoda, his master. And Yoda tells him that he's about to die. Yoda says, I'm about to die. I'm going to pass away. Now it's filled with all kinds of thoughts that we wouldn't adopt as Christians, but I think there's something interesting here that happens. Luke realizes that his leader is going to leave him. His master is going to lead him. And he cries out to Yoda, but I need your help. I need you here with me. I need you to guide me and lead me along so that I can fight the battles that are around me. In our Christian life, we wish, just like Luke did, that there was somebody who walked this path with us. Who is going to lead this congregation in the midst of all the different difficulties they were facing? There was fraying in this congregation. There were, as we've learned, two women that were fighting against each other. And this church was distraught over this situation. There were those who were persecuting them, turning against them because they were faithful to the gospel. In addition to this, in chapter 3, we will learn that there are those that Paul calls dogs who are trying to lead them away from the gospel. Who is going to watch over them? Well, there's two kinds of people that watch over us in life. There's a negative and a positive form of those who watch over us. The first, a negative example, like a boss. Several of us have bosses. Some of you are bosses. Some of you don't like to be a boss. Some of you don't like your bosses. Is that what Paul is portraying himself as in this passage? As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. I'm not going to be there to watch you, so keep on task. Is that how Paul is approaching this? Maybe you know the famous phrase, when the cats are away, the mice will play. Is that what Paul is concerned about here, that these believers are going to go live screwed up lives? Maybe you know this feeling of when your boss walks in the room and you know you're doing something that isn't quite as productive as what they wish for you. You close down the web browser screen. You put your phone away. You put all the things away and you think, make it look like you're working. 
Is that how Paul wants the Philippians to think of himself? I don't think so. I think there's one word in this passage that tells us that's not the way that Paul wants these believers to think about him. And that word is beloved. Beloved. This is the same word that Jesus hears from God the Father when he is baptized. This is my beloved son. It is the same word that over and over in the New Testament that the the New Testament writers use to refer to Christians. My beloved brothers. It is a familial term. Paul does not want these believers to think of himself as a taskmaster, trying to keep them on on, on course, doing what they're supposed to do. No, he is a brother seeking to inspire them by his example, showing them, I am demonstrating for you the way you live. Maybe you have somebody in your life like this. They come over to your house. You go spend time with them. And just spending time with them, you're inspired because of who they are in their lives. We want somebody like that in our lives, don't we? They help us. They don't even have to say anything. Just by watching them, they help us. That is the way that we as Christian leaders ought to conduct ourselves. Not as those who are harsh taskmasters, but who are inspiring Christians by our conduct to follow the way that we live. Me as your pastor, our elders and our deacons are here to show you the way to live and to show you that you are beloved to us. You're brothers and sisters to us. But what do you do when you don't have the inspiring example, person to help you when you're all alone. We feel leaderless, like a ship without a rudder. We get blown around in any direction. We don't know which way we're going. Paul continues to encourage them, and he encourages us to obey much more in our absence. To obey much more when those who inspire you in your walk with Christ are not there. And the reason for this is this is the continuation of Christian maturity in our lives. When we continue in obedience, even when we don't have those inspiring people, those people who show us the way of the Christian life around us, it is showing our growth and maturity as Christians. So that is the first thing for us this morning, to obey even when nobody is around to encourage us. To strengthen us. But how are we going to do that? How is it that we are going to continue to obey even when those who lead us are not around to encourage us and strengthen us? Well, firstly, we obey because we are saved. That's our second point this morning. As we obey because we are saved. Paul says this phrase here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does Paul mean here by this phrase, work out your salvation? I think it can trip us up. What is Paul saying? Is he undermining the doctrine that we teach of salvation by grace alone through faith alone? That we cannot earn our salvation, we can't work for it. 
Is Paul actually contradicting that now and saying you actually have to work for your salvation? You have to earn this. Is this salvation something that God does and we do as well? Are we also saving ourselves through our own effort and works? I think to understand what Paul is saying here, first we need to understand what this word work out means. It is a farming word that they used in that time. It had many different uses, just like our words. Sometimes we use it one way in a certain context and a different way in a different context. But often this word was used in farming contexts to work your land and to bring it to be fruitful, to bring out the fruits of it. And this has very significant implications for how we understand this passage. Paul is not saying work to finish your salvation as if it's incomplete and now you have a job to do. Paul is not saying save yourselves. God did his part, now you do your part. Joel Osteen, a famous popular preacher who I'm sure many of you know, this is what he publishes in his books all the time. God did his part, now you do your part. God's work is done, now it's left up to you to finish off what God has started. No, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying here to bring out the fruits of your salvation. This is the same thing that John the Baptist says to the Pharisees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, we have believed in Jesus Christ for two reasons. First, we are sinful and need cleansing from sin. And second, we need to be righteous in God's sight in order to be saved from his judgment. Christ gave us both of these freely, and he cleansed us from our sin and made us righteous in his sight, and that is why we have believed in him for salvation. But it's important to see here, it's not only what we've been saved from. We have not only been saved from God's judgment on sinners, but what we have been saved to. God has not just saved us from wrath and judgment, but he has actually saved us to something, to bring us somewhere. He didn't do half the work. Okay, I saved you from my my judgment, and now you can just work your way to heaven. No, he actually has saved us to something. God has not saved us to live for ourselves, to give ourselves over to our earthly desires, to our sinful nature, but that we would glorify him with our lives. This is what God has saved us to, that we would become people who would show to the world around us, to all those, that we are those who glorify God, that we exalt him. This is precisely what Paul tells the Philippians in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what the goal of the Christian life is leading to, glorifying God, living lives that are worthy of Him. This is our calling and obedience, is not to be saved, not that we would be saved, but that 
Or not in order to secure our complete salvation, but in order to show the fruit, the evidence of that salvation. To say, look, I am one who is saved, and that is proved by my glorifying God with my life. This is our calling to obedience. And the basis of Paul's command to obey is because you are saved. Your salvation. Now, what does this look like in practice? This looks like working hard. Like a good farmer. To bring out righteousness and good works. Now, we do this not out of a sense of obligation because if we don't do this, we won't be saved. We do this because we have salvation full and complete in Jesus Christ. And we do it out of gratitude, thanking God and gratefulness for what God has done. Then Paul adds this phrase, with fear and trembling. I'd like to deal with this in a moment because I think it's important for us to first see the reason Paul gives for doing this work with fear and trembling. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I ask, how will we make it How will we walk through this life when we are all on our own? The first reason is because we obey because we have been saved. But the second reason, and our third point this morning, is obeying because God is at work. See, God is still saving us from our sins in a very real way. He is causing us to live to righteousness. He is cleansing us. He is transforming and changing our hearts. This is what we know as sanctification. If you aren't familiar with this word, we have what's called a catechism. And that catechism explains what sanctification is. So what is it? What is sanctification? That sounds like a great catechism question. Well, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It is a renewal, changing and transforming us, and enabling us, giving us the strength, the power to do what is right. But what's interesting is what Their catechism says, and I think this is what is represented here, and I will explain it momentarily. But our catechism says sanctification is the work of God and man. Sanctification is the work of God, of God's free grace. And that is precisely what Paul teaches next. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are to labor to bring out righteousness and good works in our lives. But even that effort does not come from us. It is a gracious gift from God himself. God is the one who is at work in us in everything that we do for His glory. But this comes from His grace, 
from Him freely giving to us the power that we need to do what is right in His sight. And He explains this in two ways. There are two parts to this. To will and to work. This is an astonishing thing. To will. To choose. God is at work in us to will what is good. Our will is not free. We are not co-operators with God. As if we work together in an agreement. Okay, God, I will do my part now. It is God who makes us willing to do the work. And apart from God's working in us, we would never be willing to do anything for His name, even as Christians. But second is to work. Not only is our will, our ability to choose what is right, come from, come from God, wholly dependent upon Him, but even the power to act on that choice comes from God working in us. Listen to how Paul describes this of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. The other gospel ministers. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. God at work in Paul. And Paul recognizes all the good that I have done, all the hard work that I have put forth in this life, in Christian ministry, that did not come from me. That came from God. It, in fact, he says this, it was not me. He doesn't say, I worked and God worked. Not I, but the grace of God in me. There are three implications from this. First, even as Christians, we are powerless to do what is right in God's sight unless He strengthens us. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. Our flesh would seek to rule over us, our sinful desires in our heart. And unless God works in us, those will reign. And that humbles us before our God. The second thing is that every good work we do is a gift from God. It is a gift from Him. And this is precisely what Jesus tells His disciples. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this. This is what Christians should say about their lives. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I don't deserve anything from this. It is my job. It is my duty. And I am still unworthy. Yet God is gracious and kind to us. To give us the will. To give us the power to do what is right in His sight. But the third thing is that this gives us hope. 
This is actually the truest form of freedom. It does not ultimately depend on us. It depends on God. And this is why we pray along with the psalmist, as he says in Psalm 119, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the ways of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Even the psalmist understands that he can do nothing unless God works in his heart what is pleasing in his sight, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because this is the God who is at work in us, recognizing that I have nothing of myself that I can bring to God, only what He brings through His power and strength in me. And so today, if you are a faithful believer in Jesus Christ and you look to Him alone for salvation, work Bring out the fruits of your salvation. Show to this world around us that you belong to Jesus Christ, that he has made you new. Not because you are earning heaven by it, but because you have heaven secured already for you. And you are showing that this is what it is like to belong to the kingdom of heaven. But if you do not know Jesus Christ today, if you would say, I don't believe in Jesus, First of all, know that you are dead in your sins. And you are powerless before God to do anything that would endure His judgment. You need God to change you, to transform you, to make you new. And He does this by forgiving you of all of your sin and making you perfectly righteous in His sight as a free gift through Jesus Christ alone. So believe on Jesus Christ today. Rest and trust in Him. The same thing for you believers too. The way we make it to heaven is the way, same way that we got into salvation. Through faith alone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then work the goodness of that salvation out in your life. With every ounce of effort that you can strive that God grants to you. Father in heaven, we come to you as those who are weak sinners and need your power to work in our lives. Father, we pray along with the Apostle Paul as he begins this letter that our love would abound more and more and that we would approve what is excellent so that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of you, our God and King. Lord, we need you to do this in us. Keep us humble before you that we would say, even after we have done everything we've commanded, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Fill us, Lord, with hope that you are a God who saves sinners completely not only from 
the judgment and the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin in our lives. Do this by your Holy Spirit in our lives, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.